Welcome to the Wet Podcast, episode number 51. Jack Kerouac do with a cell phone, you know, with a smartphone, you know, would they, yeah, they, you know, would, throw it away? How would they, would they throw it away or would he just like never write anything and just be on Facebook all the time, you know? Welcome to the Wet Podcast, writing, education, and technology. My name is Eric Marshall. I am your host, as I have been for the last 50 episodes. Uh, today's guest is another Eric, Eric Mortensen, who has a new book out called Ambiguous Borderlands, Shadow Imagery in Cold War American Culture. It's a book about, um, well, kind of what it's the title says it's about imagery of shadows in in the Cold War era. He talks about the beats and film and, and other things like that. Uh, I won't get too much into it now in the intro because we do talk about it quite a bit in in the interview. Uh, in addition to talking about that stuff, which we do we we do get uh, pretty deep into uh, what his book is about, uh, his scholarship in general, and it's it's extremely fascinating. After a while, we do transition into uh, teaching. Uh, the idea of teaching. He he lives in Turkey, in Istanbul. So we talk about teaching in Turkey versus teaching in the United States. We talk about uh, cultural translations of beat poetry between those two cultures. We talk a little bit about technology, about his writing process and his writing philosophies, uh, academic publishing and writing versus kind of more general publishing and writing. We kind of go all uh, go all over the place. We talk about movies. We talk about film noir. We talk about a lot of things in this in this episode. It's it's chock full of really, really cool uh, information and, and good stuff. So I know you're going to enjoy it. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, which is number 51, go to thewetpodcast.com. That's thewetpodcast.com to see any links to things we mention, including Eric's book, in case you want to buy it, which you totally should. You can also find on the website a comment section where you can tell us what you thought about the episode, as well as a link to uh, Patreon where you can support the show if you like, and all kinds of other good stuff. We recorded this episode in um, Ferndale, Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit. It was a really nice afternoon, and we decided to record outside, and I think that gives it a nice ambiance. There's a nice... Uh, you know, you can hear birds chirping and cars going by and things like that. It's, uh, it's. I think it gives it some, you know, kind of a good atmosphere. Uh, but just wanted to let you know when when I hop into the interview here in a second why it sounds a little different than what you're hearing right now, where I'm recording in my apartment. So once again, I am Eric Marshall, and uh, this will be an interview with Eric Mortensen. I hope you enjoy it. me today, Eric Mortensen, assistant professor at, how do you pronounce the university? Uh, Coach University. Coach University in uh, Istanbul, and you teach uh, literature and? A little bit of everything, yeah, literature mainly, but film, photography, whatever. <laughs> so like a cultural <laughs> studies sort of thing, That's right? right? Yeah, That's cool. Right. Listeners will probably hear birds chirping and maybe the occasional car going by or a voice in the background, like here's a car right here. 
because <laughs> uh, we're uh, we're recording outside right now in a in on a beautiful day, <laughs> beautiful yes. sunny day in Ferndale, Michigan. Because uh, Eric's in from from Turkey, from Istanbul uh, for a while, and we decided to meet here. And it's such a it's such a nice day. We we couldn't we couldn't resist recording outside. So hopefully it gives ambiance and not <laughs> too much noise. So. Um, how, how long have you been in Istanbul, Coach? This is my tenth year there. Holy actually. moly! Yeah, it <laughs> surprises me as well. <laughs> I laugh because uh, we know each other. We've known each other for a long time <laughs> right. since graduate school, and it's just it's just one of those how time flies situations. Yeah, that's right. Ten ten years. That's crazy. We're we're here in part because you have a new book out. Just to kind of break the ice, tell us a little bit about um, kind of your the newest project, the newest book. Yeah, uh, my new book, um, Ambiguous Borderlands, looks at the, the image of the shadow as it sort of winds its way through uh, Cold War culture. Um, so it's looking at you know not just not just popular culture. It looks at a lot of that, uh, but also through artistic representations that you know you employ the shadow, shadow imagery, as a way of what I argue to, to challenge uh, some of the assumptions of the Cold War period. Oh, that's great. So you're looking at kind of undercurrents almost in the in the literature of the time. Right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, there's a lot of shadow imagery in, in just general popular culture at the time, uh, which is still with us in many ways. You know, this idea of light versus darkness, uh, truth versus the shadow, darkness, fear, anxiety that the, the darkness and the shadows convey. Um, so you see this in popular culture and popular rhetoric, you know, political rhetoric as well. Uh, but then you see a reaction, what I argue is a reaction to that in uh, artistic representations that sort of redeploy the shadow in ways that challenge, challenge those assumptions. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds great. So one thing I'm kind of interested in, kind of in general right now, is because I'm stuck in certain things, is, is how, do you, like, how did you find this topic? Like, how did it come to you? That's a, yeah, that's an interesting question. I really just randomly, uh, I was doing some research at the Harry Ransom Center in Austin, Texas. I thought I was going to write a book on dreams and the beats. I've been really into dreams all my, you know, I have a dream journal like a lot of us have a dream journal and kind of was interested in dreams and the beats are very interested in dreams. And so I went there and when I got there, I started finding, you know, this, this idea of the shrouded stranger, the shroud, shroudy traveler. Uh, Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac would you know be talking about and writing to each other, writing letters to each other about it, and they were both having this this image and this dream, and it kind of got me interested. And I started thinking, you know, there's there's a lot of shadow imagery I'm seeing. It reminded me of the Twilight Zone, which I always loved and always wanted to write about, but didn't know exactly how to approach. Uh, late film noir, you know, and it just sort of the more I thought about it, the more I realized, hey, you know, there's there's a lot going on here. And then the book was basically an answer to the question, you know, why, why the shadow in the post-war in the early post-war. Okay. So it started with the beats. That's interesting. I guess that shouldn't be a surprise to me, right? Yeah. <laughs> that it started well, with the beats. <laughs> right. um, yeah, and and the film noir thing makes a lot of sense, and I hope we can talk about that later um, as well. So you you started with that. You, you know, it's the shrouded stranger. Shroud Strange. And from there you start saying, hey, wait a minute, right? And that's kind of, I just started unraveling from there. Yeah, yeah, you know, and the the thing I noticed it reminded me how many uh, how many studies, for instance, use shadows or you know, the, the, the term shadows even in their titles, a Cold War and shadows. And oh, it yeah. kept coming up, and you th- you know, and no one really talks about that. You know, that's what I thought was interesting is nobody actually talks about that use of that imagery. Yet everybody's referring to it, or a lot of people are referring to it. Yeah, you, I, just thinking off the top of my head, I think I can think of lots of things that have shadow and Cold War, mm-hmm. or of course the film noir thing. Like the shadow of communism, or that's you know, right. that's yeah, right. yeah, it's, absolutely. Yeah. It's always we're under the shadow, 
Yeah. Did you did it feel like a book length project when you started it? Uh, I wasn't sure, but very quickly, you know, these things grow and you start to see, okay, well, Twilight Zone, okay, film noir, okay. And then all of a sudden you think, well, yeah, no, there's there's a lot here. And, you know, chapters kind of form themselves, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, there you go. You, have, you, go. you have a book project. Yeah, no doubt. Were you doing archival work for the, uh, the letters between Kerak and Ginsburg? Or, yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. I mean, Ransom Center has quite a quite a bit of their their work. Um, so cool. So yeah, check it's worth it's worth checking out, especially if you're a beef fan. They have a lot there. I mean, David Foster Wallace, for instance, they just acquired his his material. Oh, right. So you know, that's it's an right. interesting place, and they've got funding. So take a look. Yeah, actually, you uh, introduced me to Infinite Jest back in graduate school. You're you're responsible for my uh, David Foster Wallace kind of uh, fandom, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, Infinite Jest is interesting too because at the very you know there's a subplot. Uh, where two of the characters are, are debating sort of the, the merits of, of a kind of a communist world and a sort of a capitalist world. Yeah. And they do so in Arizona as the sun is setting on this rock formation. And uh, yes. yeah. on the back, backdrop of this, <laughs> this Cold War discussion, really, is, is this, the, the setting of the sun and a long shadow being cast across the desert floor. And so, you know, you still see this imagery being drawn upon uh, even, you know, a decade ago. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah, I... I can completely envision that subplot. I know exactly what you're mm -hmm. talking about. Most of it's in footnotes. There <laughs> a lot of it's in footnotes, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, oh, wow, that's cool. Do you talk about that in the book, Infinite Jest, or no? Yeah, at the, in the conclusion of my okay. book, I, okay. I mentioned that. Because, yeah. you know, this, this imagery kind of is still with us in, in okay. a lot of ways, and I think that that's fascinating, that it's sort of gotten, is collective unconscious, is sort of uh, still there, you know, that the Cold War and in the shadow. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's fantastic. Um, so you spun it into, you know, so you figured, okay, the chapters started kind of aligning themselves. You, you started writing, you started finding more and more stuff. Um, and then, uh, and you found some, you know, some things to tie them together. I want to jump into the dream stuff mm -hmm. <laughs> just sure. because, uh, because you have a, you have a chapter on, uh, it's Ginsburg and Kerouac, right? Uh, yeah. you drop from their letters in the, in the stranger, the shrouded stranger, right? Mm -hmm. But, um, I think you, you talk about like a Freudian versus a Jungian model in there. Is that mm -hmm. correct? You That's might, right. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit, just just for me? I don't know if my listeners care about uh, yeah. this, but I do. So. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting because you know uh, the beats. You know the beats were very into, into dreams. I mean, visionary experiences, drug experience, etc. And dream dreams were sort of part of that. So they were looking to the the dream as providing a, a, a way in uh, or a way out in some ways uh, from you know the Cold War culture. Uh, and, you know, of course, if you're going to invoke dreams, you're going to invoke Freud and, and right. Jung, you know, yeah. immediately. And the shadow, of course, invokes Jung immediately. You can't talk about the shadow without talking about Jung. But what's interesting to me is in the book is that, you know, this sort of a, a, a very Freudian relationship that Kerouac and Ginsburg have to Freud, right? I mean, on the one hand, you know, you, you yeah. couldn't escape Freud and that right. influence, and they knew Freud, and, you know, there was a discussion there. But at the same time, they're reacting, very much reacting against Freud, you know, and uh, this idea of mapping the unconscious in a kind of a Freudian way was too too confining for them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, on the one hand, they're, they're reacting to Freud's ideas, but on the other hand, they're sort of, you know, sort of going and uh, trying to find another way, a way out of those Freudian, even, and even Jungian representations of right. the, the dream as sort of having a particular meaning. Yeah, I went through a period a while ago, I, I like you, I have a dream journal, and um, I was and kind of am obsessed with... Um, with lucid dreaming, mm -hmm. you know, uh, so it, it's, it's been a, it's been an ongoing kind of interest of mine. But there was a time where before bed every night I would read a little bit of Kerouac's Book of Dreams. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you're familiar with that, yeah. right? Um, That's a great book. I couldn't make heads or tails of it, which is why I like to read it before bed, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> right. the writing is very dreamlike. Um, 
Why am I telling you this story? I don't know. It's just kind of, it's just kind of interesting, I think. Did you, uh, I'm sure Book of Dreams was one of the things that you probably relied on to in your research a little yeah, bit. Or? Yeah, and, and the, the shrouded, shrouded Stranger comes up in the Book of Dreams a bit, yeah. uh, you know, and this, this, of course, this is where Shrouded Stranger gets his genesis, is, you know, it's from the dream, you know, from, and it's, it's interesting. I mean, Jung had a dream very much like the Shrouded Stranger, you know, in, in uh, he was in a dream where he's in um, North Africa and he's, He's wrestling with this Arab figure, you know, uh, and, and he eventually subdues this Arab figure. Now, for for Kerouac, it's a bit different. I mean, he he's fleeing this this figure, this shrouded stranger who's chasing him. Um, so, you know, in, in a way, it's kind of funny. It's very Jungian, right? But uh, he doesn't want to read it in a Jungian way, <laughs> right? Because you know? so, right. for the Beats, it's it's about really as a way of starting a, a new start, a fresh start. Dreams were a place to sort of make a fresh start, get fresh ideas, move in different directions. They tried to interpret it, but then ultimately they didn't really, they, they weren't interested in interpreting it mm-hmm. so much as sort of just using it as a kind of a, a place to begin, right, with their writing. Mm. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, it seems like there's not as much of a barrier or a, a borderline between dreams and the rest of the creative process, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's a there's a, almost like a continuum, right? Yeah. Like why interpret it when it's, it's just part of it's part of the experience almost, right? Yeah, it's all yeah. part of consciousness. It's all part of reality, just at a different level, right? right. That's, yeah. that's the idea. Yeah, yeah, for the beats. Yeah, I find that stuff absolutely fascinating. And, and I think that uh, people tend to forget about the beats when they talk about Cold War America and post-war mm-hmm. America, don't you think? I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the beats are seen as a rejection of that, right? right? Uh, and, you know, my, my first book as well tries to sort of, you know, contextualize them. I think it's important... Uh, you know, just, just any any kind of you know these literary periods, I and mean, to sort of make sense of them, you kind of you know it helps to sort of put them in their cultural, historical mm-hmm. context uh, because you know they're they're a product of that. Whether they don't, whether they right. want to be or not, they are. You know, and that, that helps. Yeah. Understand what they're doing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because they're um, they're a product of it. They're part of it, right? Yeah, there's a, there's right. a relationship there. I think people take them out of that, mm-hmm. right? And and. Like the Cold War and the Post War is one thing. The Beats are one thing, but you don't you usually see them kind of put together in, into a context, like yeah. you said. So, or or yeah. it's just a very simplistic. You know, the Cold War world was very conformist, and they were very anti-conformist. There you go. That's mm-hmm. the story. Well, that is you know that is a story, but it's not the whole story. <laughs> it's part of the story. <laughs> it's part of the story. <laughs> right? yeah. Generally, it's true, but there's you know there's more going on, of course. Everybody knows I'm a film scholar. <laughs> I'm a media yeah, guy, right. and you have this chapter on film noir, like late film noir, um, and of course, Kiss Me Deadly, right? Is, mm-hmm. is one of the films yeah. you talk about. It has to be one of the films you talk That's about right. if you're talking about the Cold War. <laughs> um, what are your What are your thoughts on on those films, and, and just in terms of the shadow imagery and the stuff we've already been mm-hmm. talking about? Yeah. Well. What struck me about those films, and what I wanted to do in the book, and try to do in the book, is to sort of look at you know stylistic issues. Kiss Me Deadly, of course. I mean, you know, there's this this nuclear material stored in a locker. You know, <laughs> there's you can't escape this this yeah. post-war, <laughs> Cold War, atomic um, issues. You know, so that that's true. But uh, what I want to talk about is uh, you know how how the the lighting effects. Uh, the chiaroscuro lighting effects and the use of shadow is actually uh, sort of interested in kind of um, uh, 
employed in, in direct ways, uh, you, know, you know, so that it's not, I mean, film yeah. noir obviously uses shadows uh, and oftentimes uh, using to set moods or because of production uh, questions, you know. Yeah. Uh, but here in these late film noirs, uh, my argument is, is that they're sort of self-consciously aware of that tradition yeah. and they're really using those shadow images in some particular ways that work with plot in ways that I don't think had been really discussed. That's what I was trying to get to. Yeah, that's that's good because you know, like you said, film noir. I mean, the, any just like you were saying when you hear about Cold War, it's always shadow, shadow, right? Yeah. Same with film noir. Any film noir book has the term shadow in the title. Yeah, right? that's right. Um, but like you said, a lot of it was uh, you know they were on the B lots. They were you know there right. a lot of them were B films. They, they you know they wanted to do things quick and dirty, and that accounts for some of the lighting choices they made in the early days. Um, but I think you're right. Once Kiss Me Deadly and uh, and the other films you talk about come out come. About, they're in the kind of the Baroque period of the film noir, so they're taking all that stuff that they thought worked, and they're just amping it up, and they're very, I think, I agree with you, they're very self-aware, they're very self-conscious, conscious of that, you know? Yeah, that's right. Um, and so for you, that's also a product of this kind of Cold War awareness? Uh, yeah, I th- yeah, I, th- I think that's the argument, right? Uh, is that, you know, that's, um, it's very aware of, of the possibilities of that, and, you know, the backdrop to that is, a co- I'm not saying that everything is, you know, a Cold comment on the Cold War, you know, but I think it could be read that way, right? That, you know, this is, you know, and again, question kind of comes up, to what extent is this consciously done? To what extent is this, you know, just in the air, right? right. And so, yeah. you know, you're going to kind of pick up on it, right? And, you know, people are talking about this as sort of just a, sort of a collective unconscious, you know, right. uh, use of, uh, of a kind of a political shadow. And people kind of are just playing with that and, you know, so reimagining that, reclaiming that, that's the argument. And I think that's what's going on, you know, huh. in these late film noirs. And certainly in Twilight Zone. I have another chapter on the Twilight Zone. And that's, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, another heavy use of, of these effects, uh, also deriving from noir. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like, again, people have spent a lot of time talking about the Cold War uh, backdrop for, for, for the Twilight Zone, which is right. clear as, yeah. as day. But yeah. what people don't talk about is, you know, the, the shadow effects play into that and, and heighten that in, in huh. ways that are worth exploring and very interesting. You mean like uh, stylistically, like visual shadows? That's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Use of cast shadows, uh, use of lighting, you know, uh, these, all these yeah. various techniques. Uh, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, Twilight Zone was born of the Cold War, <laughs> right? That's right. That's you know, right. Um, whereas I, you're, I find your argument about film noir interesting because film noir was born of World War II, right, mm-hmm. uh, in the early 40s. So the, the, the films noir, the film noir of the 40s through the end of, the, of World War II and maybe a little after have a certain quality to them. And I think you're right that they do change after that, right? But I never thought of it in terms of after the bomb, right? Yeah. And, after, and then and with, the, with the rise of... You know, I think that's going on in the 50s. I, I think that you have a very different political environment. You know, they're doing the same style, but with different um, undertones. And that's where, like, like you said, the shadows are, have always been there in film noir, but they take on a different kind of meaning almost. Yeah, and the bomb, the bomb is important, right? I start off the book with the discussion of the bomb. You know, you have piercing bright light that's brighter than anything else ever imagined. And then, uh, you know, this is how a lot of the descriptions of, of the, the first atomic blast uh, were couched. You know, this rhetoric of the brightness of the event. Uh, but of course, you know, quite quickly after, the, the shadows appear. You know, the, the, the you know, radiation issues and these shadows etched, these horrible images of the shadows etched yeah. in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki on, you know, walls and concrete. and. You know, so it, it, the, the bomb really kind of inaugurates this, this re, or reignites this sort of discourse, you know, the bright, brightness and light and versus the darkness of the shadow. You know, both, both are encapsulated by the bomb. 
Yeah, I, we're uh, recording on June 1st of 2016, and uh, President Obama just went to Hiroshima. That's right. And I just was, I was on something on NPR just recently about uh, the documentarian who went to Nagasaki six months after, and they, they suppressed his films for a long time and all this stuff, but the thing that he, that he kept, kept going back to was this image of a shadow, mm-hmm. that I'm sure you know of it, of a guy with a cart, like uh, selling something on a cart, and it was, you see the guy in the cart in the concrete of a building, yeah. that shadow, like that's what you think of when you think of the bomb. That's, that's one of the things you think of any anyway. right? Yeah, and it's picked up in, in a lot of things, you know, Ray Bradbury, uh, mm-hmm. John Hersey's um, Hiroshima, uh, the Watchmen, you know, Watchmen, the graphic oh, yeah, novel yeah, Watchmen, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, this, this is, is used quite a bit as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's circulating, it's still circulating, right, and it probably always yeah. will. The book was just published in the last couple months, right? Yeah, February it came February. out. February, okay, yeah, it's a very 2016. Very I know it's hard to gauge with academic publishing what kind of reaction you're getting, right, because there's not, like, sales numbers or, right, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, do you have, is there a way to gauge, this is a totally off the wall question, I know, but is there a way to gauge, like, what kind of reception you're getting from it? Is there, like, some engagement, you know, that you're getting from other academics and stuff? How do you? Well, I guess the first, the, yeah, the first thing you get is, you know, reader reports, I guess, from the press itself and get a sense of what your colleagues are thinking. Um, also, you know, reviews, reviews take a little while, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so you don't always get a direct kind of, you don't get direct feedback. It right. takes a little while. There's a bit of a lag time. Yeah, and it takes a while for the for the book to sort of circulate, you know. Right. And that's something my first book, especially, I kind of, uh, you know, you think, oh, my book's out. Okay, now I'm going to just get all this stuff back, <laughs> you know, this sort of this feedback. And you, right. you, and you don't for quite some time. And yeah. it's startling at first, but then, you know, you give it a, a couple years and, you know, the book starts circulating. And then you start yeah. to kind of see, okay, this is what people said and this is what people think. Uh-huh. Uh, and, yeah, so it's just a, it's a waiting game, yeah. you know. Yeah. I think that's probably true in non-academic publishing as well, <laughs> but it's probably more so in academic publishing. Right, it takes business. people time to discover it and use and cite it. You know, you're looking yeah. for citations, but yeah. you know, that, that takes time for people to, to engage the work, write about it, and then get their work published, you know, <laughs> right. citing right. you. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's years right there. Yeah, yeah, easily. That's years right there, easily. Yeah, for sure. Publishing, it's very much kind of, you have to market it, you know, and yeah. to kind of, you know, find people, find reviewers, uh, get the book out there, especially today, I, I think, where, where, you know, the, the academic, most academic publishers aren't, uh, you know, they're not huge, they don't have a lot of money, especially now, everybody's feeling the pinch, and, uh, you know, it really behooves one to sort of get out there and kind of push the book a bit themselves, and that, you know, and that, I, that's interesting to me. I think that's also true in, uh, in non-academic publishing, but but maybe more so because I mean, the, the publishing model, the academic publishing model, is kind of like, a lot of people don't know this probably, but it's it's kind of upside down in a way, right? It's not necessarily fueled by sales. I mean, it is to an extent, but the sales are mostly to libraries and other institutions, mm-hmm. right? That's where a lot of the money comes from, and a lot of the presses are funded by universities, which yeah. is the pinch you're talking about, where because right. universities are 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 starting to uh, ramp down the funding of their university presses. Um, now you you're with you're you're with a university press. That's right, right. Southern um, Illinois University mm-hmm. Press. Yeah, and I don't know what their situation is there, <laughs> but I know like kind of the trend right now is there's less money going to a lot of presses. Presses are starting to close. University presses are. Um, so it's an interesting thing because I mean, do they have people who will do the publicity? You know, is there? Uh, you know, are they cutting back on that too? And do you, do you have to do that more? I mean, the answer is yes, obviously, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. The audience is already kind of small. 
because it's other academics mm-hmm. mostly. Although you write in a pretty accessible style, like your writing is. I try is, to. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I think is a good idea, right? Yeah. You dive deep into some of the theoretical stuff, but you're you're very like you're very readable. I tr- um, I try to be. Yeah, I mean, I I feel that you know. This, Material should be you know, a good author should be able to explain material to his or her readers, right? And it doesn't matter how difficult the material is or how theoretically abstract it is. I mean, you know, it should, you should be able to explain it, you know. And I, I think that's what's what makes a good book, right? I mean, audiences don't, readers don't want to slog through it. Now, obviously, you know, in academic publishing, you can expect certain background knowledge, but still, I'd rather uh, rather sort of assume a kind of a more general readership and sort of, yeah, uh, give people a product that they can kind of engage it. More people can, can engage and get yeah. something out of Yeah, cast a wider net while being academically rigorous. Right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, it should, you know, it's scholarly work, so you, you should be able to expect a, a certain level of professionalism, but at the same time, there's no reason why it can't be accessible. Right, right. yeah, it's, that's always been my argument. But sometimes it falls on deaf ears, but, you know, which is fine, you know. Yeah. But, um, but uh, well, I think publishers now, you know, you're right, there's more of a pinch, so the idea is to sell more books. Uh, and to do that, you know, you've got to get away from books that are really speaking to, you know, 60 people in the field and look for books that are speaking to 600 general readers, you know, instead. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a good point. Did you feel um, like in talks with your publishers that was that something that you discussed or no? No, no we didn't so much discuss it, but that, that's sort of been more and more sort of the discussion in general, you know, turning your dissertation into a book, right? You know, for your first, how to write your first book, these sorts of things really push that idea of readability and access. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I guess I always had sort of developed or tried to develop a more open style. So that, that was good. That was good news. Writing for me is about self-discovery. You know, so if I can't if I can't explain it to myself, right? I mean, uh, then you know that, that's the problem. I mean, writing should be about figuring things out. It should be about exploring ideas. Uh, you know, it's it's about having a problem or an issue that you want to sort of work through, yep. and, and yep. you write through it. You know, so uh, yeah, in a way, I kind of think I'm the you know I'm I'm the average reader, and so I should be able to explain it to myself. And if I can, usually that means other people can figure it out too. I love that attitude. <laughs> I do love that attitude. Because I feel the same way no matter what you're writing. You know, you're, you're, usually you're trying to figure something out, right? Mm-hmm. And you're explaining it to yourself, right? Yeah. Which means you're explaining it to other people as well. And if you can do that clearly, you'll have a wider audience and you'll, you know, more people will be able to engage with what you're doing. Yeah. Um, I think that's a, that's a good um, strategy. Yeah, it hadn't occurred to me that maybe that might be more of a trend in publishing a little bit because of the fact that there are going to be there are fewer presses and might be fewer books and they need mm-hmm. to maybe sell more of them um, yeah is, yeah and then have to this sense of at least trying to break even you know with right. publishing rather than yeah. you know I think in the, in the past it was probably easier to justify losing money because you know it still is a status you know you, you, your university right. has a press you know mm-hmm. um that's yeah. you know, but now I think you know the idea of, of at least at least breaking even is sort of a, a common thing. So, uh, my publisher I think mentioned something like uh, you know they expect to sell 250, 300 copies. Okay. Uh, they break even at about 500 copies. Okay. You know, and after that you're helping to sell someone else's book or hel- helping to sort of support mm-hmm. someone else's or your, another one of your books, right? So, uh, right. that's the target, right? Yeah, that makes sense. I, mean, I think that maybe publishers for university presses have been kind of insulated from market pressures for a long time um, to an extent because they get the funding directly from the university but now maybe they're more uh, susceptible to that sort of thing right they have to kind of sustain themselves a little more perhaps yeah yeah Yeah. that could be a good thing for readers 
Well, a good thing for authors too, I think, you know, this marketing, uh, some of the marketing kind of falls falls on you, but it's an opportunity as far as I'm concerned. It's interesting, right? I mean, it, those of us interested in book culture in general, I mean, this is a chance to kind of think about how, how is a book marketed? Where, you know, where would you go to sort of sell the book? How do people find out about books? Mm-hmm. What do they do with them? You know, these kinds of questions yeah. are, are interesting, right? And, you know, it sort of forces you as an author to kind of engage those questions and say, how, how do I get my message? How do I get my book out to people? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Some presses are going to a more open model where they're publishing things um, online or, or um, um, they're loosening copyright or they're distributing things more freely um, than, than in the past. Southern Illinois doesn't seem to be doing that <laughs> because the, the copy that your publicist sent me had this heavy DRM on it from a, an Adobe thing. It was all crazy. And so, there, <laughs> so I think there's a, a dichotomy almost between presses perhaps. Um, but you know they're trying to protect that the um, I don't want to say the profit, but they want to they want to have people actually purchase the book, right? Yeah. Which is not necessarily at odds with what you're saying, mm-hmm. right? That's right. But there is a tension there, perhaps, right? Well, it's it's an you know it's an interesting time, right? With the digital, uh, there's more ways of selling the book, more ways of being the book out. Mm-hmm. You know, um, as someone, I mean, I know you're interested in, in these these issues, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, it's. I mean, just to give you a quick example, I mean, even uh, review copies, for instance. I mean, in the oh, past yeah. you'd send out a hard copy, you know, if you were going to review the book or sort of promote the book. Uh, now that can be done electronically, you know, yeah. and that's cheaper and easier and more immediate, you know, and yeah. that that's kind of a small revolution. You're not really selling. You're not really spending money to kind of give free free copies. You're just giving right. electronic copies. Uh, and you know how it gets sold Kindle editions. Uh, my first book, Capturing the Beat Moment, they did an audio book out of it. Oh really? Um, yeah, which oh, I was, was cool. Who read it? You yeah, know? yeah. I forgot the gentleman's name. It's okay. done well. You know, it's interesting to hear your your words being read by somebody else. But sure. Um, and it, someone might be in a car right now listening. You know, listening to your book. Uh, but you know, I, I hadn't <laughs> thought about an act for an academic book. But you know, no, they, they've sold copies. That's great. So you know, there's all new ways of sort of breaking the text up, breaking the book up, uh, or, or you know, just new ways of getting it out there. Yeah. You know, that you wouldn't have thought of before. I, I almost never hear of academic books as audio books. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't either. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's, it. it's weird because you hear, you know, whenever you hear something spoken out loud, of course, it sounds different and it's sort of hearing your word. It makes you want to think about how, do I, how am I writing, you know? It's like, well, I, I didn't oh, write it yeah. as an audio book, right? So right, right. So if, he, to be if you hear him stumble over a particular phrase or if it comes out differently than That's it right. sounded in your head like, well, maybe I should write that differently next time, or something. That's weird. <laughs> yeah, different. the the, the syntax, especially the yeah. you know, longer yeah. sentences or sentences yes. with a few clauses. I mean, it's one thing to be reading; it's not really a problem, but reading it out loud, right. person's constantly pausing, and you know, it's, right. it's different. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you're not writing primarily for speech anyway. You're not going to do that, but that's, right. yeah, that's kind of interesting. Oh, wow. That's cool. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Since I've been doing this podcast and that's a wrap, I've been in contact with several different publishers and I've been, I've, some publishers do send hard copies. I have uh, some hard copies from uh, a couple presses of things that I've requested because we were going to interview somebody and sometimes I just send them. I just get stuff in the mail sometimes. Yeah. But a lot of it's electronic. Um, which is nice because I can request it. There is no skin off their back. There's no shipping. There's no printing. You're not That's worried right. about me That's like right. selling it on the black market or whatever. Right. Uh, you know, it expires <laughs> at some point. Ecologically you know? sound. It's practice. ecologically sound. It's easy for them. Click a few buttons. You know. Yeah. Um, it's nice. You know, and I get to review someone's work before I interview them, um, which is, is kind of nice. Um, which which should help get the word out and sell more books right. and, and whatever else it is. Right. Um, you would think, but I think there's a 
big shift going on right now in academic publishing, and, and I can't predict where it's going to go. You know, I think some people think it's going to go all open and more of a for-profit model. I think some people think it's going to stay the way it is. I don't. I can't. I can't predict it. I have no idea. Yeah. You know? But even when you your last book came out, the, your book on the beats that was five years ago. Yeah. Two two thousand. 11, 2000, 2011. Yeah. 2011. I mean, even between then and now, the proliferation, like, like you couldn't, like, I wouldn't have had a podcast five years ago. Even if I had had the idea to have a podcast, I wouldn't have a <laughs> podcast. And you wouldn't be able, probably, it would be hard to find people who would, who would do this sort of thing, right? You could probably, I mean, you could spend the next couple of months being on dozens of podcasts probably I mean not dozens but like, there are a bunch that would be interested in it right I'd love um, to so you have this kind of citizen media right, right. Yeah. Um, so you have other ways to get the word out as well beyond like oh let's send out a bunch of press releases yeah well the, of- well the beats the beats are a nice topic right because you have a, a huge crossover market mm-hmm. uh, you know there's an academic market obviously for the beat, a beat, beat studies as a field you know which I'm yeah. involved in and, and hopefully my colleagues are reading my book um, but, you know, you have a lot of enthusiasts. People just like yeah. the beats, interested in the beats. And, you know, they're, they're willing to read, you know, a scholarly study, you know, as long as yeah. it's accessible. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's kind of nice in that sense. Yeah. It's not like trying to, you know, it's a medieval text or something like that where right. the, the market, or the, the audience might be a bit smaller. So it's, it's right. helpful. Yeah, you have a built-in interest for <clears> sure. I mean, everyone has, everyone's aware of the beats, I think. And, and a lot of people are like very you said interested and enthusiastic about them i found that in film studies as well it's like got a built-in enthusiasm level yeah, you know yeah yeah so. film everyone's everyone loves film right yeah my uh <laughs> or, my, or they should they should <laughs> have you seen the on the road film came out i have yeah ago. yeah <laughs> i have you think about that uh i liked it i mean you know that was kind of geared mo- like you know most authors who, who uh or most most critics who you know are sort of tied in with the, with the literary trend or literary author uh you know are kind of you know, sort of bristle at the idea of, of the of the movie being made from the book. It's a little bit nervous, but yeah. I thought it was done fairly well. Yeah, yeah. wasn't bad. wasn't bad. Yeah. I was very skeptical going into it. Yeah, I was too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it was it was enjoyable. It was, it was all right. Um, just to talk about movies. I always tell this story. I tell this story all the time. But uh, my my dissertation advisor Bob Burgoyne, uh used to say that when he's at a party or like in a social gathering, if, if he was interested in continuing the conversation and someone's like, what do you do? And he would say, oh, I'm a film professor. Yeah. If, he, if he wasn't interested in continuing the conversation, he'd say, I'm an English professor. <laughs> right. And they would just like turn around like, oh, well, I got... <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, we can say both being in an English department. But I love, but the beats is one of those built in, you know, kind of things. Yeah, I mean, if, even if people don't like them, then we can discuss, you know, why don't you like them, yeah. right? You know, uh, and, that, and that's good. That, that's, you know, my first book, it does that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the beats. I'm interested in the uh, beats' desire to sort of live and write the moment, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in which you know, hear a lot about too, you know, mindfulness in the moment. So, yeah. uh, but you know, they have problems, right? They're, mis- you know, oftentimes misogynistic. Uh, mm-hmm. They've got problems with their politics, with queer politics. A lot of them were queer, but they had problems with that. Uh, we, have, we have problems recuperating them for that. Uh, you know, so yeah. it's, and that raises interesting issues, you know, racial issues, all of these things. So, uh, you know, problems where they they fail or you know worth discussing as well is there a like do you see something today that's a legacy or something like a throwback or like some kind of thing that we 
that the beats can teach us today or that we can see going on right now? Well, I think this mindfulness, uh, this idea of living, living the moment, you know, this is what I explore in capturing the beat moment, you know, this idea that I mean, the, the, the beats are basically running experiments. I mean, that's how I think of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're, they're experiments on living and then they're experiments on how you capture that on the page, you know, so you have this kind of interesting duality, you know, this sort of how do I, how do I, what do I do, do something new, uh, live a different lifestyle, travel, you know, live abroad, go here, go there, uh, try this, try that. And then I want to, you know, convey that experience uh, to the reader with, yeah. with a, an affect. So uh, for me, that's what's kind of fascinating. You know, you got yeah. both those elements. So I think they're still, they're still you know, providing blueprints and possibilities. Now, there's <laughs> problems with them. Not, you know, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want, I don't think anybody wants to sort of just repeat them because, they, no. you know, there's problems. But, right. And you can't, you know, time's moving on. But I think they give you a way of kind of uh, thinking about new possibilities. And I think this return to the moment, this, you know, sort of being aware of what's around you, being aware of your surroundings, uh, living this engaged life, which we're all trying to do, but we're all being pushed, you know, not to do, um, you know, mm -hmm. or, or having, you know, there's all these obstacles to it. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting to go back to them and see how, how they tried, how they did, how they succeeded, and how they failed. Yeah, because that was a time of political upheaval, social upheaval. They were re reacting against a lot of very very traditional and conservative tendencies, right? Mm -hmm. Which we right. have some of today, but it feels different me. Like, what would Jack Kerouac do with a cell phone, you know, with a smartphone? <laughs> you know, would they... Yeah. Uh, would, throw it away? Like, or? How would they would he throw it away or would he just, like, never write anything and just be on Facebook all the time, you know? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, he's just such Great a... Great tweeter, man. <laughs> right, right, exactly, you know? He just tweeted this long string of <laughs> tweets uninterrupted, right? Yeah, I mean, right. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's weird to think about because, like you said earlier, they're a product of their time, even when they're reacting against that time, right? Yeah. And I think today, like, do we have, do we have people who do similar things that are encouraging us to like live in the moment and experiment and do things? And I, top of my head, I can't think of any. I'm sure there are, but um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's the beats. Yeah, uh, think about any people today, but I'm sure, I'm sure that there definitely are. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, this, this beat, yeah, I mean, it's still relevant, right? I mean, this sort of mindfulness in the moment, you know, how does yeah. that work with digital? And I, I don't want, you know, I don't want to be, I'm, I'm a teacher as well, so I don't want to yeah. be the typical, well, you know, the, 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 the technology's abstracting us out of reality, you know, turn, right, turn, right. turn the television off, right. pay attention. In the I think that's a little bit naive. I mean, that's not I, really fair. I agree you know? completely. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, you can't help but feel that we're a bit more rushed and we're a bit more distracted than we used to be, oh, yeah. uh, you know. yeah. And, how do we Abs avoid that? Absolutely. Distracted and, and distanced, you know, from mm -hmm. a lot of things that are going on, but also not, you know. Because um, you're, you're in Istanbul, right? I mean, not yeah. right now. You're in Michigan right now. But, um, you know, we, we can communicate very, very easily between Turkey and, and here, right? Yeah. Which is great, you know. Uh, so, I mean, there are obviously good and bad. I mean, I do media studies, so I talk about this all the time with my students as well, mm -hmm. you know, uh, how to be engaged. I, I found that, you know, there's like, there's this kind of kids these days mentality with a lot of teachers, you know? Yeah. Um, right. And, uh, you know, I have their cell phones and they never pay attention. But I find that a lot of my students are much more savvy about when to put the phone away, when to be engaged, you know, than, than people I know that are our age, you know, for, for example, you know, it's kind of You're interesting. Right. So anyway, that's just an aside. You, you've been in, you've been teaching in Turkey for 10 years, okay, mm -hmm. right? What I've gone through in the last 10 years and what you've gone through in the last 10 years are probably vastly different. 
in terms of students, how they've changed, what they do, right? There are probably a lot of similarities as well. But you taught here for a long time. Are there like substantial differences that you can think of? Yeah, it's interesting that uh, on some ways, I think we're seeing kind of a global youth culture emerge, you know, with, with yeah. the internet and, you know, the sort of media and, you know, a lot of people in Turkey, a lot of students, my students are probably watching some of the same things your students yeah, are watching. Uh, so on the one hand, we can talk about this kind of, you know, global youth culture, um, on the other, there are there are cultural differences. There's no doubt. Um, in Turkey, I argue that I'm work. I just finished a manuscript on you know, the reception of the beats in Turkey. So, I'm interested in, in, in you know how the beats uh, are coming to Turkey and, and used. And huh. you know, there, there's sort of a yeah. cultural difference. I mean, a, sort of a co- more collective. I mean, you got to be careful making generalizations. But you know, sort of more of a collective culture in Turkey, and that that influences you know the classroom a bit. I mean, you know, my, my I'll have exchange students come in, American exchange students, and. America, we're taught, you know, originality and thrust yourself forward and get noticed. Uh, and, and that's not, you know, that's not always the case in Turkey. I mean, we have, you know, huh. students maybe taking a back seat, not wanting to be talking all the time. Students mm-hmm. who doing more collaborations, you know, rather than trying to come up with the original paper that, you know, sort of stands out blaring. Not that they couldn't do that. Not that they're not great students they are uh, yeah. but just sort of a different mentality sometimes they're not encouraged to do that necessarily uh, yeah perhaps, yeah right? that's right your classes are all in english i'm assuming that's right yeah <laughs> um are your students uh, are they they're probably english as second language but they're probably fluent as well yeah yeah imagine. that's right, right. Yeah, yeah um so here here in america <laughs> uh, yeah here here in the united states we uh there's a constant battle of um of what to do about personal devices you know like mm-hmm. phones or uh, well mostly phones smartphones and stuff like that when to use them when not to use them when to allow use of them and stuff like that do you have the same thing over there oh yeah no yeah. i'm not that's Figured. yeah it's it's yeah. completely uh, the same i mean you yeah. have students laptops in the class which you know can be okay but yeah, it yeah. can also foster a kind of uh, you know, someone's looking up something as you're talking about it, uh, thing, and that's sometimes good and sometimes mm-hmm. bad. Right. Uh, but we face the same the same issues, and it doesn't yeah. seem to di- you know make a difference whether the students are exchange students or Turkish yeah. students. Like you say, global culture, right? Yeah, it's, that's it's, right. Yeah, that's which right. Uh, it's it's um, not homogenizing necessarily, but there are some definite similarities, right? That sort of thing. Yeah, for that's sure. right. That's what I figured. People, yeah, I, I do like it when I'm talking about something. Oh, well, kiss me deadly. What was the year of that? And the kid will like, blurt it out because he just looked it up. I say kid, they're they're all adults, but right. Um, but, well, um, but yeah, I'm like, oh, thanks. You know, that's that's great. Thank you for being helpful because yeah. Yeah, the flip side sometimes <laughs> is you know they'll. Uh, which is can be good. I mean, they'll they'll challenge you with mm-hmm. material, which is which is good. I mean, I like the class to kind of be back and forth. I like to be challenged, but it can be hard sometimes when someone looks up facts, you know, and you, you obviously don't have them at your ready because you're standing in front of the class. You know? <laughs> yes, yes, that has happened to me a lot of times as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but you know, yeah. you come back the next day and say, okay, well, let's you know pick up on that that point you made, and you know, you do your homework, and then you know. Yeah. The, Exactly. It's fine, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think you and I are a lot alike in the classroom. I think we have very <laughs> similar styles, you know. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's definitely that's definitely true. Um, what's your? Uh, do you have a next project in mind? Yeah, I just finished a manuscript uh, on. Uh, I'm calling it "Translating Counterculture: uh, The Reception of the Beats in Turkey," uh, and that's you know, this title kind of uh, sort of hints at it. It's look, looking at how how beat texts are been received in Turkey and what what people in Turkey are doing with them. You know, and can you basically you know can you translate counterculture? Can you culturally import uh, one counterculture into another culture? Uh, that's the issue. Oh, and what are you finding so far? 
Well, I'm finding that uh, you know you can. Uh, it's huh. a question of selection. You know, you have to. Okay. Uh, you have to. You know, people are using beat texts um, in different ways. You know, that that are that are sort of responding to local needs and concerns. That's that's really interesting to me. You know, because I think there's there's some stuff with the beats that are very. Like I look at on the road, for example. That's something everybody knows. Like. The, there's car culture, there's America, you know, there's right. stuff that's, that's kind of specific to America in that time period, right? But I can see the ideas definitely would translate, right? Yeah, so I, you know, I argue that it's, it's sort of uh, not, it's a question of selection, you know, it's a question of picking out certain readings, right? And then those, yeah. those readings are there, and, and they've been made in America, too. It's not like they don't exist. Yeah. So On the Road's a good example. I mean, you know, we think of On the Road. One of the powerful images of On the Road is the road, the car, the road trip, uh-huh. right? Uh, and, you know, the America discovering America and discovering the West. Uh, yeah. But, you know, that doesn't really translate in Turkey. I mean, right. it's not really uh, being used that way. And, in fact, uh, one interesting thing about, about the novel's reception is that uh, the word hobo has to be sort of footnoted constantly and oh, discussed sure, because sure. people don't know yeah. you, why would someone just leave their family and drop out of society. It doesn't make sense in, right. in the Turkish context. But reading the novel as a spiritual quest makes sense, makes right? Sense. So, and, and we have that reading in America. It's just that, you know, w- what do you highlight? You know, in, in Turkey, a certain reading is highlighted for certain reasons. Right, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, have, you, uh, have you looked at, are you looking at historically how the beats were received? Like, uh, were they, like, were, were, was this literature available to people in Turkey in, during the time period? Or did it come over more recently? Well, that was one of my, uh, one of the reasons I kind of picked up on, on this topic is that it comes over later. Uh, you know, the, right. you had a lot of uh, censorship issues, you had a lot of mm-hmm. difficulty importing materials, and it wasn't until the 1980 coup in Turkey, uh, where Turkey sort of opened itself up to foreign influence more, that you started getting this inundation of Western products. Now, what's interesting is those all came at once. So you have these early <laughs> fanzine culture in Turkey where you'll have, you know, a David Lynch review and an essay on Nirvana and uh, some poems by Ginsberg in the same <laughs> journal. And it's sort of just odd, no odd context. sort of no context yeah. or, you know, too much context. Too much you know, context. Uh, yeah, right, un- right. And, you know, this would be called the underground. It was sort of all enca- encapsulated, all captured by the term the underground. Right. So their reception is very much a product of a, like a post-1980 uh, inundation or flood of this new kind of countercultural material. That's interesting. Okay, so it all came over at once. And this is the 80s, right? The 1980s. So you've got yeah. probably some punk as well. That's right. And, That's uh, right. Some European influences. So they didn't have the, the beats as they were going on. So it's all the stuff that came over at once. That's pretty wild. It's hard to imagine. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's interesting because it sets the tone for a certain type of reception. You know, that's the yeah. argument. You know, so yeah. that you're you know you're thinking about it in a particular way you know, as under underground and then underground sort of these these ideas attached to, to that concept. Uh-huh. So that was the. I mean, you know, now they're more and more they're sort of seen as legitimate. You know, kind of classic authors, but it, you right. know, sort of, especially at the time and even today, you know, it's sort of colored by this particular underground, mm-hmm. dark, pessimistic kind of mm-hmm. anti-literature, yeah. you know, Realistic. perception. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah, for sure. The reason I asked that question was because I was thinking that uh, a 21st century Turkish student uh, re- kind of reading the beats for the first time might not be so different from a 21st century American student reading the beats for the first time, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's the there's the cross-cultural translation, but there's also like the, the temporal translation, I guess. Because I think mm-hmm. uh, 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 an 18-year-old reading uh, Ginsberg now or Kerouac 
I could find a lot to, to hook into, right? On the, the spiritual stuff, like you said, and all that stuff. But it, there's still a cultural translation that has to happen. Right? Yeah, even, that's right. Even within, within the United States, I'd imagine. Yeah, right? that's right. It's yeah. sort of an interesting kind of set of valences, right? I mean, how mm-hmm. something's brought over culturally. And, and I think this, this uh, becomes readily apparent when it comes to dissemination, which is something that we haven't, as beat scholars, haven't really discussed, which is contemporary dissemination. What does it mean to, to encounter a, a beat text or on the road or whatever mm-hmm. uh, online first or as a meme right. or as, a, as you know, a, an image or something like rather right. that? Rather than a, sort of, you know, the, the imi- classic image of the beats uh, years ago it was, you know, you, it's, it's sort of an underground reception, right? You know, someone, hey, check this book out. Hey, check this poem out. Or you're at a used bookstore or you're at a cafe. Mm-hmm. Word of mouth kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, this sort of shibboleth kind of, kind of yeah. reception. Whereas now, you know, it's probably more and more happening uh, online where someone kind of bumps into, an, into a beat figure through this kind of, kind of sort of online reception. What does, that, what does that mean for our expectations as readers? Right, right. When you just send me the link, right? Yeah, send me <laughs> you know? the link. Show yeah. me on your phone, man. Wikipedia, you know? yeah, you know, Wikipedia, just... right? But there are some good repositories of, of beat poetry out there, you know. Yeah, and that allows access. That's the nice thing. I mean, you can be yeah. in Turkey, uh, and you know, in the past, yeah, you. How would you know this stuff even existed, right? Uh, if it wasn't out there and if it wasn't translated. Whereas today, you know, internet access, you have immediate access yeah. across the globe. Yeah. yeah, you don't have to wait to run into somebody who has a copy of it. They can, like, hand you, but it does, but it's different, right? Yeah. I know that, you know, the original uh, manuscript of On the Road was touring. I don't know if it still is. Mm-hmm. It was uh, touring some libraries and stuff, and you can go. Was, I'm sure it was in glass, you know, yeah, and all that right. stuff. And you could, like, see it and see the text and all that stuff. Because it was on a continuous scroll, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, so there's this artifact, right? There's this original... There's an original, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which even in, back then, no one got to see, I'm sure, right? Yeah. It was always reproductions, but, you know, we don't have that anymore. You know, there's no original to, like, your book, for example, right? It's all, I'm sure you didn't type it on a typewriter. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Multiple so, yeah. drafts yeah. that printed off from the, the printer or just, yeah, you yeah. know, on a computer screen or on a file somewhere. Yeah, which is going to cause a problem for archivists in the future, I think, too, because at least you have the archives of these things, right? These actual, you can go to, but now, yeah, who knows, right? Yeah, but, right. Yeah, that's interesting. So the reception of, that sounds like a really cool, is that going to be a book length as well? Yeah, that'll be a, a book. That sounds really, really fascinating. I would be interested too, like I said, of, of a comparison between Turkish students now and American students now. If you, I'm not, that'd be, that's probably outside of the scope of what you're doing. No, no, I, I, I talk about that because, you know, yeah. that's uh, the sort of an organic project. I mean, a lot of these, you know, some books, some books, you write them and some books write themselves. And l- luckily, this was one that wrote itself. Yeah, it Just, sounds like it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm in Turkey, I'm teaching on the road. Hey, there's a weird, not a weird, but a different reaction, you know, and then students would be bringing me articles. Oh, check this. Here's a, you know, here's a fanzine talks about the beats, check it out, and, you know, just sort of grew. <laughs> I, I don't know if you knew that uh, William S. Burroughs' the novel The Soft Machine went, underwent a censorship trial in Turkey as, uh, as late as 2012. Oh, so, really? you know, this is, this is current, you know, this is still current wow. events in Turkey. So Burroughs is still a subject of censorship. Wow, yeah, Burroughs wild. is still that's shaking wild. things up. Still shaking <laughs> things up all these years later. That's, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, it's not cool. I mean, it's... <laughs> 
Well, you know what I mean. It's, it's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Huh. Oh. Wow, so they're going through some of the same stuff right now. Well, this, well, is, this is what kind of got me into the project, too, is to think about the beat reception in a, you know, in a later moment. I mean, for, for us as scholars, I mean, typically we kind of end in the 70s, 80s. You know, we, kn- we know that people are still reading the beats, but we're not really investigating mm-hmm. that. And right. a lot of people have been looking at transnational issues, global issues, mm-hmm. which is great. Yep, yep. But oftentimes that uh, involves, you know, influence, who the beats were reading, who were they meeting with, who were... Mm-hmm. You know who was uh, whose work was influential on them, yeah. this kind of thing, which is great work. But we haven't really talked much about you know readership and who's reading them and why they're yeah. reading them, how are they using them? And because yeah. uh, you know you don't just read; you have a context. You, you do something different with it. Right. Uh, and, and then you look at, if you look at editors and trans and translation, you know something that needs to be talked more about. Uh, you know, there's choices being made. You know, what are those choices yes. and what, what messages do they send? Yeah, and there's social aspects and, and things yeah, like that too. Right. Of it. Yeah, expectations sure. that are met or not met. Cover, book covers, you know, how they're (laughs) sold, how they're marketed, how they're distributed. You know, these are all all important factors that are worth thinking about. And allow us to think about uh, us as Americans, we as Americans, uh, you know, the assumptions we're making about the beats that we don't maybe question much. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because I think we do have, they've kind of solidified in the cultural consciousness into almost a caricature it feels like you know there's a certain stereotype of what a beat is and, and yeah. no one really investigates much further than that i think yeah or just classic hipsters you know classic hipsters right, right know, exactly the- exactly yeah were you at wayne when diane de prima came yeah 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 you were there for that That's that right. was a very interesting experience you know yeah she signed a book for me and uh because i told her i was interested in um in the I Ching at the time, I was really kind of investigating that. And she's like, oh, I have a book that's kind of about the Ching and kind of not. I was like, oh, that's cool. And later on, she sent it to me, like she signed it for me. And it was, I was like, oh, that's cool. And I realized it was like the year I was born, it was 1972 that she wrote it. And, <laughs> right. Which is weird, right? <laughs> yes. And, um, and uh, that particular edition, there were only like a couple hundred copies. Mm-hmm. You know, it said right on it. Like, I was like, she just gave me a copy that was only like a couple hundred made. 30 some years ago at the time, right? It yeah. just kind of blew my mind. Um, but she was interesting to talk to because she kind of embodied some of that stuff still. You know, the kind of the, the there was a QA about, um, she was talking about parenting. Someone um, raised their hand and says, Well, how did you feel about being a single parent during that time? You know, kind of like in today's kind of lingo or whatever. Right. She's like, uh, what I wanted like that's not like I didn't want anything other than that it was just different like, like there, there was almost a translation problem between the question yeah. and the answer you know what I mean because there's so much cultural difference I think in the time that's passed but also I think in what they were reacting against to an extent that was a rambling story for uh, yeah no I think it's interesting <laughs> because you know we kind of have these easy notions uh, they challenge conform yeah, that's true but if you kind of yeah, if you, if you talk with them, uh, well, most of them have unfortunately passed, but if you look at memoirs and read their work, uh, interviews, you know, they're still kind of pushing the envelope today. I mean, you know, if, yeah. you were, you know, if someone was to say that, I mean, you know, you're like, whoa, that's an interesting take, you know? Yeah. Uh, and they, so they're still kind of challenging in a way, you know, yeah. I think, which is kind of, kind of fascinating that they could sort of tran- transcend, right? Uh, yeah, it's you know. very fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And you can kind of... I mean, not to go metaphysical or whatever, you can feel it, you know, like talking yeah. to her. You, know, you get this kind of like, she looked at her life like that, you know, I think a lot of them did, kind of questioning and like not subscribing automatically to whatever the, the 
dominant kind of paradigm is. You yeah, know, which is uh, hard to do. Right, <laughs> and I, days, I think know? you know that's and there's there's resonances today, right? You know, frustrations with this you know neoliberal order. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know jobs, having a hard time finding jobs, keeping jobs, getting the kind of job you want, you know, <laughs> alternatives, you know, we all, we've all thought about it, you know, what can we do? I want to do something, how can I take back control over my time and what I want to mm-hmm. do, yep. uh, my own work, you know, and how could I do that in, in today's world where I have to have money, I have to kind of, you know, play by certain rules, but, uh, you know, that's, that's still a question for a lot of us, you know, and, and yeah. they had answers. I mean, we don't necessarily, again, want to repeat all their answers. Some of them were wrong. Right. Or, or, or they're, they're, not, they're not our life. But, right. but we could learn something. And, you know, and, and also, I think just uh, the willingness to kind of take that risk. You know, I wish sometimes I had more of that where I, I'd yeah, be willing to too. kind of drop out or just do what I want to do and sort of let things work out for themselves. Yeah. It's hard. You did move to Turkey. Well, yeah, true. Like uh, that was from, a risk. Where, where are you originally from? You're, uh, I'm the Bay Area. So yeah, so I mean, you know. I mean, <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. But you did it for a job, and there was a structure to it. That's and, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I often wish I had some of that spirit as well. Like, I don't want, yeah, I don't want to do exactly what they did at all, but I do wish I had that spirit. And listeners to this podcast will know that a lot of what you just said is what this podcast is about. You know, some of my journey yeah. to find. That's- what I'm doing with my life and how to take control of my time and you know right. and all that and, stuff and it's difficult and, yeah. and, and I mean uh, a lot of your other podcasts touch on these issues you know mm-hmm. people trying to kind of find a different way more, more interesting way a way that kind of accommodates people better you know different forms yes. of education and you know you've done a lot of podcasts on this and I think that's yes. that's interesting yeah. uh, you know yeah. we're, we're all looking for for you know, different a different answer you know we're yeah. not, not happy with the way things are going right, most right. of us I'm right right and how do you live that you know, yeah, in your day to day, and that's a, that's a tough one too. Yeah, you yeah. Know, how do you, how do you live it? How do you how do you make do? You know, uh, I mean, money. Unfortunately, a lot of it revolves <laughs> around that. You know, you need you yeah. need a certain amount. You need a uh, you need a sort of a structure of some sort, right? So. Yes, of course. Yeah, for sure. So I usually end these by um, by asking: Is there is, is there something that you wanted me to ask you that I didn't? <laughs> oh, <laughs> something you wanted to talk about that we didn't talk about. Well, I mean, you know, maybe the the writing process a bit. Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm know, very just, interested in that. Yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to preach to people, but uh, <laughs> you know, if you're if you're interested in academic writing. Well, you have successfully published two books so far. You've got a third in the works. I think we can learn something. So, yeah. So, what's your what's your process? What's my process? Well, uh, I guess you know, I was thinking about this uh, before. What I would say. I mean, the the main thing, I guess, is finding something you really like. I know that's a bit cliched yeah. at this point, but. I think it's true, you know, uh, finding a topic or idea, a problem that you want to explore, uh, you're going to be spending, you know, if you're going to write an academic book or any book, you're going to be spending quite a, a bit of time on it, you know, years. So, you know, what can, what topic can sustain that kind of level of inquiry over time? Uh, you know, and just the joy of exploring that through the written word and, and playing around with these ideas, and researching and writing and revising and researching and writing going back uh, over time. Um, you know, and then trying to sort of hopefully seeing a, seeing a form emerge out of that and mm-hmm. putting that together, uh, you know, yeah. and, and I think that's that's great, and that's that's the greatest thing about about writing to you know for me. That's the thrill of writing for me as well. Yeah. <laughs> that discovery process, finding a new idea, making the connections—it's like a mystery, right? Yeah. But that sustaining thing—that's to me the hardest part. <clears throat> you know, after a while, I'm like, I am bored with this. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> do you get that, or do you get? Or- uh, yeah, I mean, that happens. I think it's just—it's some of it's just practice. You know, yeah. and just uh, and by practice, I mean you know forming a kind of a practice where you just say, okay. 
you know, this, this semester, this year, I, I have Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings from nine to noon, I'm gonna right. work on it, whether I sit there and write three pages or whether I sit there and, you know, stare at the page <laughs> one way or the other, I'm gonna be, do, yeah, I'm gonna <laughs> yeah. be doing it. And if you do that long enough, you know, yeah. something will emerge, right. you know, eventually something, pages will come out, right? Yeah. The phone's off, the internet's off, whatever it is. Yeah. And you're, right. you're there and, and you're writing or you're researching, but that's, it's just chipping away, right? Chipping away. I had an old professor at Wayne, Herman Rappaport, you know, he, he said, you know, well, if you did one page a day, Mm-hmm. You write one page a day, you'd have a book every year. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's, sim- I mean, in a way it's simplistic, but it's also kind of true. You know, yeah. and you're not going to do that, obviously, but if you were to even produce half that, you know, yeah. that would be a lot of material you could work with and, and it wouldn't take very long to, to turn that into something, you know, and that probably right. holds true for any kind of writing. Absolutely. I always tell people who want to write, I say, you know, write a thousand words a day. You know, I can write a thousand words in 20, 30 minutes, even, even if it takes you an hour. Like a thousand words a day is 365,000 words a year. That's, that's a couple novels, a couple books. Yeah, that's, that's a that's lot right. of writing, you know? That's right. Uh, it's, it's, it's that small chipping away, but it's hard in the moment to do that, right? Yeah. Sometimes you're like, I don't want to do this, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I think you're right. Uh, regular practice is, is like, this is what I'm doing. This is when I'm doing it, mm-hmm. whether you feel like it or not. And then I think you rediscover the passion. You get through the boredom. Yeah, Almost, right. that's right. And it's, it's the mindfulness thing again. It's the, mm-hmm. it's the willingness to kind of say, no, this is time that I, w- I want to do this. This is what I want to do. And I'm, mm-hmm. you know, I should have a right to allot myself, you know, a certain amount of time to do it. Right. Why not? Right. Exercise the same, you know, phys- hey, you know, I need, mm-hmm. I'm going to the gym this hour, you know, right. and I know it's hard. It's easy to say, you know, we have, but we have obligations and children and this and that, and, right. you know, but you need to, right. Otherwise you just get caught up in the, the whirlwind and you, you know, you lose the sense of self. Absolutely, yeah. So the moral of the story is have a do what you writing want to do. practice or you will lose your sense of self. <laughs> yeah, right. Do what you want to do. Yeah, that's absolutely right, you know. And I think that um, I, always, I often look at writing, especially academic writing, for a long time I've looked at it as a means to an end, uh, a means to get a job, a means to get tenure, whatever it might be. Yeah. Uh, and that I'm very, very, I've been very cynical about it, but I just started an article myself recently and I'm rediscovering that passion. I found something I'm interested in. It's, it's getting, it's, it's growing and I'm thinking it, it, it's, it's going to be an article, but now, now that I'm tacking stuff on, I'm like, this could be a book actually, yeah, right? That's right? But it's got that intrinsic value of, I'm doing this for me because I want to figure this out. I want to figure out what these things mean and explain them, as you said earlier, to myself, yeah, right, in order to explain them to other people. And I know it will get hard at some point, soon probably, but, you know, just have that, that practice and do that, you know, and I think that's, it's worth doing, you know, it's better than watching YouTube all day. Yeah, and there's, you know, you know there's a joy in creation. I mean, I think every yeah. human being feels that, you know, I and it doesn't so have too. to be writing, but yeah. whatever, you know, building something, making something, doing something, and, you yeah. know, writing's the same thing. Whether it gets published or not, you know, whatever happens to it, the fact that you, you know, produce this object and you can kind of say, this is me, I did it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's nice to see it in a kind of a published form, you yeah. know, uh, that right. it can just be circulate, you know, yeah. but um, Have a the life process. Of its own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I yeah. mean, you know, that, and that's in some ways easy, you know, self publishing these days, you know, there's ways you can at least get it out there. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's great. I mean, you know, your, your work here, I mean, you have a whole body of work with, the, with these various podcasts, mm-hmm. and so it's yep. a wrap. And, uh, that's great. You know, you, you look at this thing. Here's something that you know I did. Yeah. Here's something we did, and uh, it's out there. You know, and it's it's doing work in 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 the world, and that's great. Yeah. 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 When we started talking earlier, before we started recording, I told you this is the 51st episode. I'm like, what? How did I keep doing that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's like this thing is out there. And I think that uh, even with academic, you can. I, I'm waiting for a good 
crossover between academic and the self-publishing world. I think that there's going to be some kind of crossover there at some point. And I had uh, I had Scott Rank on this podcast a while ago. He's also in Istanbul, and he talks about turning your dissertation or your academic work into more publishable, like kind of um, right. uh, things that are have a broader audience. And that's um, I think an interesting thing as well. So yeah, I mean, there's ways to do that. So Eric Martinson, thank you so much for being on the Wet Podcast. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed myself. Thanks once again for listening to the Web Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at eMarsh. And I always appreciate reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen. Thanks a lot. See you next week.